Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park and fellow music fans, I'm Kayla. And I'm Bethany, and we're the hosts of Standing BTS from the Consequence Podcast Network. We're a bi-weekly show that covers the impact and legacy of K-pop group BTS. We mix the perfect blend of research and fangirl as we take a deep dive into lyrics during album reviews, theorize over music videos, and keep up with their current events. No BTS topic is off limits. We welcome everyone into the conversation, whether you're a casual fan, committed ARMY, or someone who's just curious about one of the biggest music groups in the world. Come chat with us every other Thursday with a new episode wherever podcasts are found. This is the place where Black is the main character, where we dive into something new like the latest season of Them, The Scare, and the award-winning American fiction. Or add to the experience by buying or renting the biopic of a legend, Bob Marley, One Love. And add on channels like Paramount Plus and Stars to bask in nostalgia with Beverly Hills Cop and BMF. Explore Prime Video's culture-rated collection and enjoy old-school greats and new-school hits. Restrictions apply. See Amazon.com slash Amazon Prime for details. Hi there, this is Jill Hopkins from The Opus. After you check out this latest episode of my show, be sure to check out some of the other great programs on Consequence Podcast Network, including Rootsland, an original story of two friends who take a musical and spiritual journey from the suburbs of Long Island to the streets of Kingston, Jamaica, or Standing BTS, a bi-weekly podcast covering all things BTS and ARMY. Oh, And then there's the What Podcast. It's a weekly podcast by two Bonnaroo veterans exploring and highlighting the live music scene. They're all fantastic. So head to Consequence.net to listen to these podcasts and many great others. Consequence Podcast Network. A lot of really, really great rock albums that 7th graders would like came out in 1991 when I happened to be in the 7th grade. Nevermind and Blood Sugar Sex Magic came out on the same day in September. Both Use Your Illusions did really well. There was Octune Baby, Out of Time. And I liked all of those, but I also had Cooley High Harmony, and that one Paula Abdul album with Rush Rush on it, and Roxette's Joyride, heavy rotation in my house. But one day, in the spring of 1992, I remember it was near my birthday, 
I was at home and had MTV on in the background, like just about every 12-year-old in America. And that's when I saw Eddie Vedder jump off of a perfectly good balcony and into the arms of a crowd of people. And I, I, didn't, I didn't know what to do. This sounds ridiculous, but I had never seen such a thing before. And I'd honestly never seen anyone look like they were enjoying themselves more in my life. And I just didn't know how to process it. So I just sort of stopped where I was in my apartment and sat down. I sat down on the floor and I watched what was left of this video and stared at the bottom left-hand corner of the screen and waited for the titles to come up. Pearl Jam, Evenflow, 10. And after that, I started listening to a lot less Roxette. The record store at Ford City Mall, my mall of choice, was a Coconuts. It was later a music land, and then a Sam Goody, and then an FYE, and now I think it's a parking lot. I walked into that store the very next weekend with a piece of paper that said, Pearl Jam, Evenflow, 10. And I gave it to the guy working there, and he laughed a bit and walked me over to the peas in the rock section, where I hadn't spent a whole lot of time before. And I would have laughed too. I mean, some skinny black girl with probably like a side ponytail and pristine white kids just walks up to you, doesn't say a word, and hands you what looks like a note you'd give to a bank teller to tell them that this is a robbery. And it just has the name of a rock band from Seattle, a song title, and a number on it. I'd purchased my cassette with my hard-earned allowance, and listened to it on my Walkman all the way back home, and again after dinner, and again after school the next day, and every day until verses came out, probably. It really is one hell of an album. It's my favorite album, and I just wanted to give full disclosure about the giant stickman-shaped heart on my sleeve. In this season of The Opus, we're talking about Pearl Jam's 1991 debut album, 10. And in this episode, we're going to get into the band's origin story and the extraordinary set of circumstances behind their formation and the incredible first album that would ignite a rock legacy for 30 years and counting. For the Consequence Podcast Network and Sony Legacy, I'm Jill Hopkins, and this is The Opus. Let's go. The series of events and the number of bands that had to happen and form and break up to have Pearl Jam and 10 even exist 
is the kind of thing that'll make a skeptic truly believe in fate. Every city's rock scene is like one big high school, right? Everyone's just one metaphorical math class away from everyone else. But some people have gone so far as to call Seattle's scene in the late 80s and early 90s incestuous. So let's get into it. Guitarist Stone Gossard and bassist Jeff Ament were members of the band Green River during the mid-1980s. Green River was good. They did okay with fans, but they broke up in 1987 due to some creative differences between Stone and Jeff and their bandmates, Mark Arm and Steve Turner. Mark and Steve would go on to say in a documentary that Jeff and Stone wanted to be in a funk band, but Mark and Steve wanted to be in a punk band. So in late 1987... Gossard and Ament began playing with vocalist Andrew Wood from the band Malfunction, which, if you're trying to spell it, whatever way you spell it is probably wrong, and eventually organized the band Mother Love Bone, while Mark Arm and Steve Turner would go on to form their punk outfit, Mud Honey. We love an amicable disbanding. Mother Love Bone recorded and toured and signed with Polygram in 1989, and the label created the Star Dog Records imprint exclusively for the band, and they recorded their debut EP. During all of this, Andrew was fighting a terrible addiction to drugs that would get in the way of the band's progress at the very least. For him, November and December of 1989, were spent trying to come to grips with his problem. But he returned home from rehab with even more creative energy than ever, and he threw himself back into his music. On Thursday, March 15, 1990, Wood did an interview with Seattle journalist Michael Browning. And reading it now, and and reading it probably even then, you'd never guess that anything was wrong. You get the impression as Wood talks about his drug problem, that for the moment he was convinced that he had it beat. But the following evening, Wood's fiancée, Zana Lafuente, came home around 10.30 and found Wood collapsed on their bed. He was rushed to Harborview Hospital and immediately put on life support. But the damage caused by a lack of oxygen meant that recovery was out of the question. On March 19th, the machines were turned off, and one of Seattle's brightest lights was extinguished forever. Andrew Wood was just 24 years old. Jacob McMurray is the curator of the Museum of Pop Culture in Seattle, Washington, one of my favorite places to visit, and it's home of an incredibly thorough Pearl Jam exhibit that includes a literally larger-than-life bronze statue of Andrew Wood that was commissioned by Andrew's former bandmate and friend, Jeff Ament, and his wife, Pandora. I feel like Mother Love Bone was that it was primed for something much bigger and it was cut short sort of tragically you know too soon but i think you know ultimately 
that's what led to, you know, to Pearl Jam and to something, you know, potentially even greater. So I don't know, it's, it's a strange sort of a process to think about, you know, losing something and losing someone dear, you know, but that sort of leading on to what would come later. But I don't know, tragedy sometimes works like that too. Stone and Jeff were approached by Soundgarden frontman Chris Cornell, who had been Wood's roommate. He asked if they would be interested in recording two songs he'd written in tribute to Andy. Say Hello to Heaven and Reach Down. He envisioned them as a single. And he enlisted his bandmate, Matt Cameron, and Jeff and Stone to help. And the project turned into this entire album. The group took the name Temple of the Dog because it was a reference to a line in the Mother Love Bone song, Man of Golden Words. Wanna show you something like a joy inside my heart Seems I've been living in the temple of the dawn Where would I live if I were a man of golden words? I would I live as long Jeff Ament and Stone Gossard were committed to still playing together following Andrew Wood's death. But at this time, it was just a matter of when and with whom. And while waiting for the answer to present itself, Gossard spent the summer playing guitar with an old friend named Mike McCready. McCready's first band was called Warrior, which they later turned into a band called Shadow. Mark Arm would compare them to early Def Leppard in that it wasn't really metal, It was like 80s pop psychedelic metal. Those are his words. Mike got burned out by the whole trying to get famous in L.A. thing they were doing at the time, and he left music behind for a while. But it was, of course, impossible for him to walk away forever. In early 1989, he formed Love Child, a psychedelic blues band, which only played two shows. But one was at the OK Hotel and Stone and Jeff were both there. That was the night that they were reminded that Mike was a badass guitar player. Stone and Mike started working together almost immediately, and Jeff joined in later that summer. And soon, the three were compiling new songs, and a band was slowly coming together. Meanwhile, Jeff was rounding up another group of friends to play with. Love Company was just a chance for people to play together on a fun level, and they played exclusively 70s covers, like Bad Company and Aerosmith songs, you know. They lasted about five shows, and they were all local. I may or may not have purchased a Love Company t-shirt while putting this whole thing together. I did. I, I absolutely did. But new material was constantly being brought into these sessions, 
and some were destined for a demo that the trio of Gossert, Ament, and McCready would use to complete their band. And of these songs, the majority, once Alive and Black included, would eventually appear on Pearl Jam's team. So now that the Temple Project had their own demo completed, Jeff, Stone, and Mike began an active search for a singer and a full-time drummer. There was just one little problem. Polygram still owned Stone and Jeff. Not just Mother Love Bone. The contract they had signed with Mother Love Bone was both as a band and as individual artists. So Jeff and Stone had to fight to get out. And it was expensive. Like, all those guys are rich now, but they were absolutely not at the time. But once free, the pair and McCready signed with Epic. And they finally looked outside of Seattle for collaborators. And one of the people considered for drummer, since Matt Cameron was busy being in Soundgarden, was Jack Irons. The former Red Hot Chili Pepper was definitely worthy of consideration. Dude can play, you know that. But the day they came knocking on his door, he was out, and his wife answered the door. They gave her a tape and a message to pass along. Give it a listen. If you like it, call and see if you want to come up to Seattle for a little bit. Or if you know any singers, pass it on. By now, of course, Irons was involved with another band. They were called Eleven. But he did have a friend. A singer. A singer that might be interested. A singer named Eddie Vedder. Vedder and Irons had met back in the autumn of 1989 at a place called the Bacchanal in San Diego when Irons was touring with Joe Strummer's band. Eddie Vedder was and is a huge Joe Strummer fan. And he was backstage that day and was equally excited to meet the Chili Peppers' former drummer. You see, young Edward was the vocalist for a San Diego progressive funk rock band called Bad Radio. They started out as a group influenced by Duran Duran, and one can only imagine what that sounded like. But after Eddie joined, they moved on to a more alternative rock sound influenced by, you guessed it, the Red Hot Chili Peppers. Before that, he kept busy recording demo tapes at home and working all sorts of odd jobs. He also spent time in other bands, including Surf and Destroy, a band called The Butts, and Indian Style, which, by the way, included future Rage Against the Machine and Audio Slave and Prophets of Rage drummer Brad Wilk. 
A friendship quickly formed between Eddie and Jack, and Eddie would start going up to L.A. once a week to play basketball with his new pal. And so Irons passed on the tape, telling him, quote, These guys have been around, and they were members of Mother Lovebone, and it looks like they've got a deal going. It's a serious thing, so see if there's something there for you. Eddie took the tape home, and he listened to it, and there was something there for him. So much so that he just started writing lyrics for the music. There were none, so Eddie put his life on those pages. And then he dubbed those lyrics onto the tape and mixed it down and mailed it back. Brian Fallon, who's a great frontman, formerly of the, the group The Gaslight Anthem, he was their singer, their rhythm guitarist, he was their main lyricist, and he's found success as a solo artist. He's playing the Ohana Festival next month. But he's also played shows with Pearl Jam over the years. And he's just as bewildered that these dominoes fell in the way that they did as I am. To me, it doesn't even make sense, like, how they would send songs on a demo tape to, like, some guy in California that they're drummer. Like, because in this scenario, if, a, if somebody I was playing drums said to me, I know this guy in Wisconsin, let's send him a tape. Instantly, I would have said no. Like, because even now with all the, the transportation, it, it's going to be an issue. Like, who's going to move? But then I guess when you're 22, you don't really think about that. And you're sort of like, well, they, they would move. You know, it's just, sure. But to go and then, I guess he just like went surfing. <laughs> it's like, I'm going to write these words. Like, no big deal. This is just alive. You know, it's cool. Whatever. Tom Earlwine is the editor-in-chief of allmusic.com, and he has this to say. The band would not have existed if Andrew Wood hadn't have died. And then like, then the very tenuous connection of getting Eddie Better into the band, for, for that matter, too, is just like having to, he makes friends with Jack Irons, and then they, he gets the t- tape to Eddie. And so it's like, these are just... It's the sort of thing that would make you believe in fate just because there's like everything lines up for the band to be, be there. And when I look back at Pearl Jam 2, it seems like they they set up a lot of their career, but and especially this uh, early stage as a, a reaction to things that went wrong in Mother Love Bone too, like they, the amount of record company attention and overproduction. When, when the came, 10 came, comes out, it's um, it sort of seems like to... A certain portion of the audience is, is that it's out of the blue, but really, uh, Stone Gossard and uh, Jeff Hammond uh, had this long career together, like and working their way up through the indie world to uh, getting this uh, shot at the Golden Apple with, with Mother Love Bone, and then things fall apart. So, in a way, Ten is hearing them pull the surviving elements together in a way, like and figuring out a way, way forward. Then it gets uh, Eddie Vedder's energy which where it feels like he just has this opportunity to unburden himself almost <laughs> like like it, he has a very different energy for a rock star completely different than Andrew Wood too <laughs> so that gives it a really distinct chemistry I think that's still palpable So all this new band needed now to complete their lineup was a drummer. 
someone who would complement Jeff's groove-filled playing style. Now, Pearl Jam's had a lot of drummers over the years. They finally did circle all the way back around to having Matt Cameron be their full-time guy. But at first, they were kind of flailing. Enter Tal Gottling, a member of the band Son of Man. Son of Man was this great group in the scene that was really poised to break through until a house fire destroyed their equipment and more than likely their motivation. You may remember them from the liner notes of Alice in Chains' Dirt. No? You don't remember the liner notes from every cassette you bought in junior high? Okay, weirdo. Tal thought his longtime friend Dave Krusen would be perfect for the group, and not just because he was also a veteran of about a million bands, his first being a group called Outrigger when he was about 13. Tal knew Stone and Jeff from the days of Mother Lovebone, as Son of Man opened for them a few times. So when he heard the group was auditioning drummers, he passed on that information to Dave. Dave auditioned, he was given his own copy of the demo to take home, and two weeks later, he was asked to join the band too. Krusen joined Ament, Gossard, Vetter, and McCready during the fall of 1990. Just a week before the band played its very first gig, opening for Inspector Love and the Ride Me Babies at Seattle's Off-Ramp. Anytime you think that a band name couldn't be more ridiculous, just think, there were groups called Inspector Love and the Ride Me Babies. The band was calling itself Mookie Blaylock after the New Jersey Nets guard, who, as it turned out, was real smart about endorsements and had copyrighted his name. So, Mookie Blaylock, the band, was no more. And Pearl Jam was born. Over the course of working on the opus, I've gotten the chance to dig into two albums celebrating their 50th anniversaries. You should go check out our Santana and Janis Joplin seasons if you haven't already. And those albums didn't make me feel the passage of time in nearly the same way that albums that came out when I was younger but still old enough to buy them with my own money have. Looking into the history of the 10 album and Pearl Jam the Band, has somehow made me feel ancient and 12 years old again. I didn't have to revisit this record because I never stopped visiting it. And musical styles have cycled around in the last 30 years or so so that new bands are chasing that same sound that Jeff Stone, Mike, Eddie, and Dave captured as a new band all those years ago. 30 years is a long time in the music business, and lots of bands that came out of the gate as strong as Pearl Jam did, and especially when Pearl Jam did, certainly aren't still bands. But maybe because their forming was such an adventure, fraught with such tragedy, that they were ready for the roller coaster that three decades in the rock world would bring. And also maybe 
because they were too young at the time to grasp how huge they had the potential to become and how huge they would eventually be. Here's Tom Erlewine. I think that sometimes we don't quite remember exactly how big it is, or you read the, the sales figures, but that doesn't really put into perspective how big it was in terms of just sheer omnipresence. Of course, I was in college at, the, at that time, so I couldn't walk through the, the halls of the dorm without having it come out of several different dorm rooms. You know, it just, but it was not just college kids that were into it and it, you would hear it out in the wild everywhere and it became a huge hit like the old-fashioned way through that touring and through radio hits and the and the strategic videos like they may not have liked doing videos but you know jeremy was on mtv a lot and uh, so was the even flow and it, like it just continued to escalate over the course of 1992 and it it's unlike records today where everything has to be a hit out of the box this was just it started slow and the label broke them and but if i can see where they would be worried that they would break after being because that's a lot of pressure and they had just gone through mother love bone i can see why stone and jeff decide to curtail it along with eddie better because there was a potential of being too big. And also if you're too big, you have a t the potential of only being identified with that moment in time. And Pearl Jam are identified with it, uh, the 90s, but they, by doing things on their own terms, they've managed to, to sustain themselves for 30 years. And, you know, they're still making really good music. They really, really are. But for our purposes, we'll just keep talking about those first times they made really good music together. In this season of the Opus, we'll talk about the songs on 10 that you haven't heard a trillion times on the radio. We'll talk about their first times out on the road as a band. And in the next episode, we'll talk about Jeff Ament's art and how a doodle of a man with his arms raised in a V launched countless t-shirts and tattoos. For the Consequence Podcast Network, and Sony Legacy, I'm Jill Hopkins, and this has been The Opus. I'll see you next time. Consequence Podcast Network. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line 
prop or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. And fellow music fans, I'm Kayla. And I'm Bethany, and we're the hosts of Standing BTS from the Consequence Podcast Network. We're a bi-weekly show that covers the impact and legacy of K-pop group BTS. We mix the perfect blend of research and fangirl as we take a deep dive into lyrics during album reviews, theorize over music videos, and keep up with their current events. No BTS topic is off limits. We welcome everyone into the conversation, whether you're a casual fan, committed ARMY, or someone who's just curious about one of the biggest music groups in the world. Come chat with us every other Thursday with a new episode wherever podcasts are found. 